Why are we here today? That's a question that I can never understand. Long story short, that's not value. That's not creating value, right? So without getting overly pedantic, there are many different things one does to create value. You make the buyer experience, what I call BX, versus customer experience actually by CX. You make that experience frictionless and really valuable to the buyer. You step into the buyer's shoes. There are many different things that you do and you gotta, first of all, as a, as a sales executive, it's my responsibility and some the onus is on sales leaders to design the right process and systematize it in such a way that everything starts with the right mindset based on the process to step in the shoes of the prospective customer. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Zorian Rotenberg. He's the CRO at Infotelligent. And in our conversation, Zorian and I dive into the topic of how and why a CRO is a different, a chief revenue officer is different than a vice president of sales. I mean, titles are thrown around pretty easily these days, but as we dig into, there are substantive differences between the two roles, and Zorian shares some details about how they should be viewed, which includes this very interesting perspective that good CROs are like a hedge fund portfolio manager. Now, how often have you heard that analogy? And we talk about the steps CROs can take to hedge their risks as they scale their operations. And to wrap things up, Zorian shares some of his nine steps for scaling revenue, starting by what you define scaling. And you want to make sure you check in for that. All right, we get into all that and much, much more. Before we get to Zorian, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Zorian, how are you doing? Doing great, Andy. How are you? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. We're recording this on a Friday, so it's always good. Uh, Happy Friday. Friday. Happy Friday, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. The way my work schedule sort of works is, is Friday is actually one of the leaner days. <laughs> Sunday tends to be busier, so I've sort of a shifted work week a little bit. Um, so you're based in the Boston area. Is that where you've you know, sort of sheltered during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. Live a little bit west of Boston. It's a nice rainy Friday here. Oh, uh, well, I wouldn't give for rain. You need rain. You know, you need it anyway, right? For the plants, yeah. for the trees. <laughs> it's, it's necessary. Yeah, I'm recording on my San Diego office. And, and uh, we've, uh, I think the average temperature, I saw in the weather last night, is like the average temperature in October has been like somewhere between 12 and 15 degrees above normal. <laughs> and nice, so it's been like... Nice. No, I it's like I'm ready for I had summer. I want fall now. So and not that we get a, a yeah, an east coast fall here in, in California, but the weather does change and it's I'm ready. So anyway. Well, here's a question for you. Yes, sir. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself personally as a result of the pandemic? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, lesson about myself. I think probably that um, within a month of, of this whole shelter and home, um, I realized that I, I really miss people, obviously family, my parents. And uh, I decided to just reach out and reconnect with a ton of people I haven't talked to in, in several years. 
um, some people I used to work with mm-hmm. and used to work for, um, even for more than a decade that I haven't talked to. And I just realized I, you know, I'm still, no matter what a people person and love people and feel I need the connection. And I feel like I had some tiny level of empathy out there. I didn't realize I had to, uh, to just reach out. I didn't really need anything from anyone besides just making sure everyone is okay. So it kind of made me feel a little, a little better, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 I did a little of that myself and, and, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I've worked on my own for forever, but uh, 20 years at this point, but, um, yeah, there's just something that was different about that. I mean, I had my, my, uh, first ever boss, my first ever sales manager reached out to me during the pandemic and we reconnected. We hadn't, talk, we hadn't talked in, I really want to say how long, um, decades and, um, yeah, so I invited him to be a guest on on this show. The episode aired just a couple months ago. It was fantastic uh, to reconnect and have him share stories about just how horrible I was when I got started. Oh, so, no. <laughs> well, I, I don't believe that. But but I do think that if you ask me what I learned about myself is that I, I felt I didn't realize I have such a need. Um, but I, I really th- – that was the part that I think I – actually enjoyed about the pandemic where whereas it's not a very enjoyable thing in itself no no i mean i'm like most people i'm ready for it to be over but yeah know that it's we still got a ways to go yeah unfortunately but uh yeah it's been such a a big change in lifestyle i don't i mean did you travel much beforehand i mean i i was traveling back and forth between the coasts at a minimum, at least once a month, if not more often, and as well as uh, traveling to meet clients, and uh, that just came to a screeching halt. And for me, that was a huge, a huge uh, dislocation, if you will, because you, know, my wife and I, were in in Manhattan uh, for the first three months of of the shutdown, and I get ready to. We flew out to San Diego right near the beginning of June, end of May, beginning of June, and and. I think that was the longest period of time I hadn't been on an airplane. And as far as I could remember, I mean, maybe yeah. 25, 30 years that I'd gone two, three months without, which is, I'm not bragging. Trust me. It was, it was a sad indicator of my life, perhaps, that I'd been on airplanes that much. But I, I was sort of, my wife saw me sort of standing in the middle of the room as we were packing uh, to leave. And I was just sort of, I said, stuck. And she said, what's, what's the problem? I said, I forgot how to pack. <laughs> I mean, I just, it was muscle memory where to put things in my backpack and in my suitcase. Yep. And it was just like, I just, I'd lost it. Yeah. No, totally. I, I was in uh, Netherlands for business. I had a team there and um, I came back and like two weeks later or something. It was, yeah, that little time after that, everything was shut down. And then I started thinking maybe when I was on the airplane, who knows if somebody sneezed or coughed. Uh, fortunately, oh, yeah. I, I didn't get anything yet, but um, you never know. But that was it. After that, it all shut down. Yeah, I've always traveled. At, um, some years ago, I was at a very successful company where I had teams all over in, uh, in Europe, across US, um, Australia, you name it. And um, I traveled like almost three weeks out of the month or something as bad as that. So, um, yeah, I think this is an interesting change. 
paradigm shift, if you will, in working. And it's different. Well, I know. I look at, at it strikes me every time I see it on TV or a movie is you know, there's a scene with maybe a business meeting and people, you know, six, seven people getting together. They're all shaking hands. I'm like, huh, are we ever going to do that again? I mean, I think <laughs> so. I think I mean, so. I mean, we're, well, I just wondering, what, you know, sort of what needs to happen for us to have that level of comfort again to, to your point, to go out and, and be with people, true, as the way we were before. I, I know, obviously, the vaccine would, would help immensely, but. Um, yeah, I think, look, I mean, you look back at history. I, I love history. Um, you look back at history, and we're probably really deviating far away from. Uh, from sales leadership conversations, but um, nineteen eighteen, you know the Spanish yep. flu pandemic. Hey, we're we're shaking hands right now, right? I mean, go back to Middle Ages, right? The Black Death. You know, a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of time has passed, of course, but but I think people get over it quickly, and uh, the fear will go away. The, the key right now is to ensure that people's health uh, is protected. But once once the vaccine is there, I think we'll be okay. We'll shake hands again. I look forward to that. <laughs> well, that's, that's really, I, I agree. It's, I think that there's an interesting follow-on, though, there is that, and I was having this conversation with someone yesterday that interviewing for the show is, what really is going to change in sales as a result of this? I mean, there's some research that's showing that, hey, you know, field sales is dead. No one's going to travel. Oh, no face-to-face. No. I know. I'm just saying there's the extremes, right? And then there's <laughs> the other extremes like, yeah, we'll get back to normal or we'll have some hybrid mix of things. I'm just wondering what your thought is on that. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I would say I'm not an expert on COVID and sort of post-pandemic shifts in you know, social environment. But here's what I think based on sort of um, history and what I'm seeing right now. Historically, as we just said, you know, there's historical evidence and data that things will get back to normal in terms of people being, you know, next to each other, um, people shaking head, hands, um, you know, giving each other a hug. It's not a big deal. It'll get back to that. Uh, and humans, you know, humans want to communicate with others. Um, but in terms of field sales, um, look, I think, of course, field sales will be back. However, it'll be in a slightly different form. Um, because of pandemic, the business world didn't stop. I mean, things have slowed down. A lot of businesses have obviously, unfortunately, suffered greatly and more so than others. Um, but in many cases where the solution is necessary, uh, prospective clients continue to go through the buying journey. And ultimately, many uh, proposals were signed in the past six, mm -hmm. seven, eight months, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of those proposals are not just mid-market deals for, you know, fifty or hundred thousand dollars, and and not even small enterprise deals like hundred or five hundred thousand. Some of those are multi-million-dollar deals. I mean, um, I worked uh, with one of my um, sales reps uh, to help them close an eight hundred forty-seven thousand uh, dollar two-year contract. So, and multi-million-dollar deals are getting closed on the phone, uh, or rather uh, via Zoom or virtual meeting obviously it's not a one cold close it's uh, a lot of conversations a lot of engagement with a prospect but i think what that is indicative of is that over time much larger deals will be uh, done over 
over an online communication medium like Zoom or uh, Google Meet, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think for much larger deals, field sales will be necessary because meeting with customers over complex uh, technologies and and uh, more impactful deals will require bringing the team on site and uh, doing all the typical motions you need to do in person. So, look, I think, if anything, um, COVID definitely accelerated uh, the transition, even by a lot of um, laggards, you know, on the Jeffrey Moore curve, mm-hmm. right? The right. chasm, right? <laughs> so I think those companies are also doing Zoom calls, whereas before they wouldn't even care to do uh, to do that. Um, but they're doing it, and now they're adjusted and acclimated to that. Um, but I think COVID is sort of impacting um, – I would say for sure with, with a younger generation, I can see social skills um, probably uh, impacting the way that people uh, connect to others. You know, I can still see a lot of the junior sales. Negatively, you're, you're saying. Negatively. Yes, yes. I'm sorry to clarify negatively. Uh, but that could also mean that there might be a positive sort of pendulum swing because of that negative social skill impact. Uh, maybe there will be some sort of a revival and uh, resurgence of resurgence of I don't know coaching and development by sales management of the reps mm-hmm. to get better at empathy and connection and relationship building all the things that are really missing uh, a great deal and even before COVID but anyway well but I think those are inter- I think those are interesting topics because I I yeah yeah had a fairly heated discussion with a a guest last week uh, we were recording an episode about this whole idea of relationships in sales and and this person was saying they were unnecessary if not even possibly undesirable though oh, it was sort geez. of a nuanced definition of what relationships were and yeah. um and i i believe that's just plain silly so i agree <laughs> i think uh, i may have said that to course. him but of but course I mean, it depends on what the definition is right everybody yeah, can I mean, have their definition and it's different yeah but everybody seems to be hung up on this idea that, yeah, when you say relationship, you mean friendship. And it's just like, come on. No, can't we get over that? It's not even a relationship. When you look in the dictionary, I don't even think it uses the word friendship. Um, yeah, no. It talks about connection. A relationship is defined as the way two or more things are connected or work together. It's like, yeah, yeah. all we're doing is That's making this cool. human, human connection that facilitates uh, credibility, building credibility and trust. And without that connection, those yes. things aren't going to exist. Absolutely agree with you. And I think, there, the, look, I mean, even pre-COVID, I think in salesmanship, uh, and when I say salesmanship, I have my own definition of what sales is. Um, and I think... Which is? Um, you can't just walk by that. What is it? Oh, uh, my definition of, of selling it has three components. And I thought about it for a long time because I didn't get into sales intentionally um, at the beginning of my career. Uh, my career is just really unusual. I started in investment banking and I Went to college for finance and, and mathematics and computer science, and I, you know, was an investment banker. And then I got an MBA from Harvard, and I worked in growth equity, venture capital. And then I decided to go to sales. So, but that's a whole different story. Yeah, really. But but when I did going that, going downhill. <laughs> it was definitely going into deep into operational, um, uh, you know, revenue driving uh, role. Right. But uh, and after, it was after I was an investment banker and. and 
and a venture capital associate on the investing side, realizing I need to understand how to scale and drive companies because I'm investing, but I don't quite feel I get how they're doing this. Like, wouldn't I be a better investor? Which was my intention. But in any case, what bothered me is like a lot of people thought that's crazy. Why would you go to Harvard, get an MBA where after that you can go? And I could have gone to a hedge fund because I already worked on Wall Street. Um, and I was very good at math and numbers because I got an applied mathematics minor. Uh, not that I was the best in, in my math classes. Um, n- never felt I was the smartest guy in the room in those uh, graduate level ones. But long story short, even my family were like, wait, you're going to do sales. I was like, no, there's a reason for this. Because, um, you know, without a customer, you're kind of just a science project. It's not a company, right? So selling is is really the the heartbeat of, mm-hmm. the, of the business. Mm-hmm. But I kind of thought about how do I explain what sales is? And, and my definition out of that sort of pedantic rumination was that there's really three things. Uh, and I define it as um, creating value for your buyer. That's number one, creating value by helping them solve their challenges, mm-hmm. their business, business problems, business pains, I call it challenges, um, and d- generating for them a return on investment, an ROI. So they invest in your solution, you, uh, your company, there has to be a return on that investment. And I bring that Wall Street sort of background for that ROI, but it's creating value, right? It's helping, right? It's helping solve a challenge, a problem, mm-hmm. and, and generating an ROI. And that to me is what the word selling is really all about in a very authentic way. So if you're not doing that, it's almost like inauthentic to me. And I feel like I wanted to come up with that probably somewhat for my mom and dad um, <laughs> because they were concerned. Uh, they didn't say, you know, you didn't go to Harvard to get an MBA to go to sales, you, you know, but I right. had to explain that this, you know, a lot of CEOs in, in technology space are former sales executives for a reason. Um, and a lot of, CEOs are actually, as, as you go up the chain, right, the org chart, um, every CEO is, is at the end of the day a sales professional. They're selling in a different way, of but they are, they are in sales. And actually, Venture Capital, is, there was a great interview of um, Bill Gurley, I believe, from Benchmark mm-hmm. uh, on um, 2020 VC uh, podcast, um, or 20-minute VC, excuse me. Uh, Harry Stebbings. And um, he talked about how he didn't realize when he went into venture capital early in his career, he also was in investment banking. He said he didn't realize that being a VC is, is a sales job. It's enterprise selling. you got to sell your fund and why somebody should take money mm-hmm. from you, especially when it's very competitive. Right. Long story short, um, that's what sales is. But um, but we really deviated. <laughs> no, no. We're, that's, this, is, this is good. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about, so your definition, three parts. So let's go through those again. Definition of sales, according to Zorian Rotenberg. First part was, again, Creating helping. value, then helping, and at the end, that should generate a return on investment. So let's deconstruct that a little bit. So when you say creating value, meaning what? So by producing a solution to a problem, right, it has to create value for your buyer and for their company, right? Whatever it is that um, their challenges, whatever they're experiencing that they need to solve, right? You shouldn't just um, have them buy from you 
that solution actually has to create value, right? And value means something that that is valuable, that create that is a benefit to them, um, that ultimately resolves the problem they're experiencing, and that's value. Mm-hmm. But and I'm not picking on this, but I just you know for me that seems like an outcome of a sale, right? So for a sale to have been considered a success in retrospect, it needs to have created that value. That is true. But during uh, a process where you're engaged with a buyer, right? That's what I'm the, driving the, at. The, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the right, the right sales professional. And by the way, I say professional, not rep, for a reason. There's a difference to me between sales rep and a sales pro, uh, just like you know a, a football professional in the NFL is a little bit different than a, I don't know, a high school football player. Uh, they're in a profession of football <laughs> versus mm-hmm. just playing on a team in high school. But long story short, uh, you got to create value along uh, that whole process, which is, um, which is hard to do, right? A lot of sales professionals, maybe in this case, actually sales reps are not creating value. They, um, they try to extract value. Let me give you a tactical example, but this is sure. probably too tactical. I'm, I'll be very honest with you. My my expertise is much more on the strategic side of leading sales teams than the very tactical uh, things that a lot of good sa- sales account execs will, will be able to tell you about. But long story short, think about this. You um, have probably experienced signing up for a demo on a uh, website of a company that has some interesting, I don't know, sales or marketing technology. You sign up for a demo because you heard that this product is really interesting, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And have you ever had, um, it's a rhetorical question, but a rep, an SDR reaches out to you by email and says, thanks for signing up for a demo. But before we do a demo, we got to get on a discovery call. You know, do you have 30 minutes um, next week? Here's my calendar link. Click on it and pick a time. Now, there's a couple of issues with that. <laughs> number yes. one is you did not click a button get me a discovery call you clicked it show me a demo or see a demo or register for a demo or get a free demo whatever it is instead you get someone telling you uh, and creating friction in your process to learn more about the solution that requires you to show up to something called discovery call where you're going to be discovered and frankly interrogated by a very inexperienced sales rep that's friction. Asking a standard set of questions. <laughs> yeah, off of a checklist. So why did we? Sh- why are we here today? That's a question that I can never understand. Uh, but long story short, um, that's not value. That's not creating value, right? So without getting overly pedantic, there are many different things one does to create value. You know, you uh, you make the the buyer experience what I call BX versus customer experience after you buy. Mm-hmm. CX, mm-hmm. make that experience frictionless and really valuable to the buyer. You step into the buyer's shoes. Uh, there are many different things that you do, and you got to, first of all, as a, as a sales executive, it's my responsibility, and it's on, the onus is on sales leaders to design the right process and systematize it in such a way that um, everything starts you know, with the right mindset based on the process to step in the shoes of the prospective customer and deliver value and it starts with for example defining your stages of your sales process not with words that are you know self-centric for the company that's selling but buyer-centric 
For example, instead of a stage like qualifying or a stage like discovery, you have stages um, that are, you know, based on the what the prospect's behavior is, right? For example, researching us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. things like that, right? Um, long story short, value comes um, in the form of uh, the 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 experience for the buyer, but also afterwards, and probably that value is quantified in that ROI that I said. Yeah, well, I think value, and this is, well, yeah, I'm interested in what you're saying about this because, yeah, I think sales is all about what happens up to the time the customer makes the commitment, and you know, outcomes and ROI and so on is is these days generally not sales' responsibility, but but you are there to help them. First and foremost, you're there to help the customer solve a problem and make a purchase decision. Yeah. And the idea that you're there to sell your product shouldn't be at the forefront of your mind. It's always there. You are representing your company and so on. But what the customer needs from you at that point in time is they need to understand the problem they're trying to solve. So let's just start there at the beginning. Because a lot of companies don't have that fully formed idea of what that that problem is they're trying to solve. They don't know what the possibilities are. Um, and so your job as a seller is to help, and this is where you know one source of value for them, is to help them understand and to help them feel understood that you know what their problem is and they Absolutely. know what their problem is. Absolutely. And that could yeah. come in the form of data that you provide it could be questions that you ask it could be insights you provide it could be case studies it could be any number of things but i have a very specific definition of value in sales interest in your opinion on it because my definition of value is it's anything that helps the customer move closer to making a decision so i like it so if you interact with a buyer and you have a meeting and as a result of that meeting, the customer is no closer to making their decision. It doesn't have to be you know, a stage progression or whatever. But if they're no closer to making their decision as a result of the meeting than they were beforehand, then what did you accomplish and why did you waste their time? Yeah, I agree with you. I also would, would um, add to your point that value comes in other forms as well. I mean, oh, uh, yeah, that wasn't meant to be a comprehensive list, but yeah, that's an example. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, another one could be every prospect's time is valuable. And I think one form of value um, in, along the line and spectrum of, of value points is, you know, being more um, respectful to their valuable time by not, um, you know, not creating those obstacles. You know, if you want to Discovery process internally is very important, but that doesn't mean you have to tell them you're not going to see a demo and first we're going to do a discovery call. I think that's a broken process. By the way, um, I, I do want to say very clearly, I don't blame the the junior sales rep uh, or some senior sales professionals who could do a far better job anyway. I blame always the sales leader. And since I'm a sales leader, I, I always feel it's my responsibility and the onus is on me. And I take full accountability for any problems in the process. If my team is doing something wrong, it's like, uh, you know, um, Bill Belichick says, right? If we, if we win as the team, if we lose as the coach, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, so Spoken when I say like a true team, New Englander, by the way, 
hey, I'm a huge Belichick fan, so I, you know, <laughs> if any listener, um, hard to argue with anyone, I do want to apologize. Look, I mean, that's we're talking about a grandmaster yes. of chess, right? I mean, he's incredible on so many levels, uh, but really not necessarily just related to sports. I mean, you can learn no, a lot no, of you, I mean, from Belichick. Sure, look at the example of of. I mean, people look at sports and think it's all about the athletes, but you know the fact is there is a process put in place. There is oh yeah value from the coaching. There is value from the organization that they add to what the product that takes place on the field and the competition that takes place is. There's a reason why certain organizations keep winning year oh, after yeah. year after year, and it's, you know, Belichick's and uh, New England's a perfect example of that. Oh my goodness! I mean, now that we went there, let, let me say this: it's it's sure. called leadership. Leadership, right? It's it's what kind of leadership you have at the top, and I think that makes a giant difference in a company's success. I was talking about about this on another podcast, um, and you know, the thing that I think people may not always comprehend is um, leadership is not a soft, squishy, fluffy concept. Um, that's what I think a lot of people feel about leadership who are very inexperienced, but it's actually rock solid. It's skills you can learn and apply. And the leader ultimately is only as effective as their team. And that's mm-hmm. it. So when we talked about Bill Belichick, um, look, I mean, a lot of what he does can be lessons for for companies and sales executives, for sales leaders. The specific one I'm most interested in is how does he build high-performing teams out of recruits and drafted candidates uh, who nobody else wants. I mean, for example, you know, Tom Brady is a great example. Nobody wanted him for six rounds. Right. Um, but, you know, New England took him in. How about um, – and this is, by the way, he's building a dynasty and high-performing team. Think about sales, high-performing team winning team but he's doing it when it's even harder when there's a salary cap free agency and draft picks right that you have to kind of uh work with but julian adelman for example don't don't kid yourself there's an effective salary cap in sales too but go ahead yeah yeah (laughs) but not as many um obstacles But, but julian adelman had the scouting report it was something like lack size and speed a bit of a gimmicky prospect May lack a true position at the next level. Nobody wanted him, right? And uh, there are many players like that. Now, Julian Adelman was key to winning the Super Bowl against Atlanta, which mm-hmm. was like the number one most watched and interested, interesting Super Bowl, and had that like the greatest catch, the impossible catch. And Belichick has consistently done this. He has this like next man up mentality, which means if somebody's hurt, he has v- versatility in his system. And in his process and in the way he recruits players, versatile players, that they still win games. It's incredible. So how does he do it and what can sales leaders learn from his approach to bring in players um, that maybe others don't even want? You know, And he has, like again, a huge list. Nate Abner, Matthew Slater, Chris Hogan, um, Cordero Patterson, Chris Long. Yeah. You just, yeah. It's not just one-off. So anyway, I didn't want to kind of belabor that but long story well, no, short but I leadership think it's, but it's but it's an interesting point is that that yeah that to your point is that he hasn't always gone out and gotten the top draft picks uh yeah. or tried to trade for formerly top draft picks and yeah. 
so yeah, one thing that I've, a couple of things I write about is one is that one of the things that Belichick is extremely good at is making sure people understand what their responsibilities are. Unambiguously yes. clear what yep. their responsibilities are. Yep. And you know, sets expectations, but then if you perform within those expectations and meet your responsibilities, you know, you've got some freedom and flexibility to to excel. And this is, I think, is one of the things that's really missing in a lot of sales organizations. I've spoken at length about this, is that we don't provide people a the right uh, expectation of what their responsibilities are. And we also don't give them, having defined those, we don't give them the latitude to develop within them to become the best version of themselves. Well, you just said a couple of very important things. You know, number one is, you know, you said something about clarity. There's this, there's this great book by Patrick Lencioni, mm-hmm. The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive. And uh, he has this, in discipline three of that book, um, he talks a lot about the concept of over-communicating clarity. He didn't say communicating. He said over-communicating, right? Like ad nauseum. You know, the key tactic of a great leader is making the complex simple. There are so many other things to a great leader in positioning your team to win, Um, you know, building up other leaders under you. Um, There's so much more to it. But I think, yes, I mean, not to belabor the sports concept is what Belichick is doing is is exceptional leadership and very data-driven Leadership, something I also think is sort of missing a lot in sales, even still today. Um, one of many problems I see with, with um, unfortunately, with, with sales today. Uh, not not everywhere, but one of the evident problems. But yeah, he's he's a he's a grandmaster, and I think everyone can can learn from him to build companies and sales organizations. Yeah, no, I I absolutely believe so, and I think that that's there's actually. Again, without belaboring the sports analogies, but it, we're looking at it from an organizational level, not from yeah, excuse me, individual performance. Which I think there are a lot of lessons there as well, because yeah. sales, like athletics, is a performance-based profession, and we yeah. don't treat we don't treat it like like it is. Um, but yeah, it starts at the organizational level, starts at the top, and so I do think that you know, in the case of sales, we talked about you know people being unambiguously clear about what their mission is. And so we, we train sellers and send them out to sell saying, look, your job is to go out and get orders. <laughs> and what they should be training them to say is your job is to go out and help the customer solve this problem. If it happens to be that they end up buying our product as a result of doing that, fantastic. But if we do a good job helping them solve their problem, we're going to increase our odds of doing that. If yeah. we're creating value for them during the sales process, if you, know, you talk about being frictionless, but I'll, I'll I'll be a little bit contrarian about that and saying actually, you know, good value delivered to a buyer actually creates a little bit of friction because you force them to think, mm-hmm. right? You don't want them going down a path. I mean, the, take the whole challenger concept. That's pure friction right there. So <laughs> you know, you just you just hit something that that I always um, kind of smile about. I think there are a lot of not well-developed sales reps who uh, take the challenger selling uh, concept and without carefully reading everything and understanding <laughs> it, they start challenging prospects. And, and right. I just find that to be so, um, it's just so unfortunate because your win 
probability. Listen, I think of sales, I told you I have an applied mathematics minor. Mm-hmm. I think of sales, as, it's probabilities, right? It's statistics, right? Everything you do should be done with an intent to increase your odds statistical of probability, right? Your odds yes. of winning the, the I, transaction. I agree 100%. In an ethical, authentic manner, obviously, yes. but you know, <laughs> not to give a wrong idea to, to any listeners. But yeah, I mean, look, um, they take that incorrectly, and again, I blame their sales leader, and I would take that responsibility if my team would be doing that. But they start challenging prospects, which um, harms trust and uh, definitely reduces your probabilities. But anyway, that's just one of those things. Look. I think ultimately, um, you know, we, we, we were talking about leadership and about uh, how it connects to tactics. You know, we're kind of jumping from, not jumping rather, we're kind of probably um, going from strategic to tactical here. But I think the connection is leadership and leaders create culture and culture drives behavior and behavior in turn drives results. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the that's the kind of linear relationship right there. So the the behavior of the sales team, and it doesn't matter if you're a CEO uh, managing a company, or you're a sales leader, or you're I don't know any other you know marketing leader, product leader. I mean, ultimately there are a lot of similarities in how you have to lead effectively. Uh, but if your team is not doing the right thing for the buyers. Right is the leader's fault. That's my, you know, frank opinion. Um, and and you're doing a huge disservice by not being an effective leader. Uh, Richard Branson said, "Take care of your people, and they will take care of the customer." Right. And leadership of taking care of your people, and there are many ways to do it, from uh, being a supportive leader. Like I have this uh, concept I talked about on the uh, not too long ago with Rob Japson on his podcast. I call it SET, like set, like is the team all set? And as your leader, you might you got to make sure that your team is all set and set up for success. And S stands for support, kind of uh, supporting your team as a leader. A well-known terminology in leadership style is known serve as servant leadership, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and it's what it really means is you're being a supportive leader, right? I like that term even more, supportive leader, right? You've got to support your team, not be the the manager that's meddling and, you know, as I joke around, you know, checking in and checking up and send me updates, but doing nothing of value. We talked about value earlier, doing nothing of value to their sales, professional sales teams. Right. You know, if I, if I'm managing uh, as a chief revenue officer, if I'm managing, you know, a couple of vice presidents and senior vice presidents and directors of sales of different regions or verticals, you know, commercial versus enterprise, if I'm just asking them for their updates and what's going on, that's not leadership, right? That's just like meddling, right? What value are you really creating there? Um, so the first part of set is support. Um, and there is, by the way, about that, there's like a whole research by Google called Project Oxygen yeah. that defines you know that. But not to belabor that, the second one is energy, which is, uh, and by the way, to be clear, creating the right energy is, is really about creating it's not about rah-rah cheerleading at all. It's about the right environment and the right energy that drives results and helps the team win. It's, it's also about bringing in the right people that are part of the right chemistry of the team, right? That don't create imbalance, mm-hmm. right? It's coaching people effectively to, uh, to maintain that right 
energy for success. That what Belichick does for his team without any cheerleading or sort of um, artificial or disingenuous rah-rah. So, and then uh, the... Well, uh, a, I think he's incapable of rah-rah, but yeah, go ahead. He is, he is. But he's very capable of creating the right energy that drives the team mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to put, you know, to, to give their best and, and, and put them in a position to succeed as a team, not as any individual. Which Even I think is, stars, that last point's really a critical point, though, too. Is yeah. This is the part, I think, where managers don't spend enough conscious energy thinking about is yeah are they what steps are they taking to put their people into a position to succeed and and yeah i have this sort of hypothetical question i ask around that regard which is okay if if you manufactured a product and you let's say a hardware product of some sort or something and and you shipped it to to customers and it only worked 50 percent of the time out of the box the first time, mm. yeah, you know, that would be considered a pretty dramatic failure, right? Yeah, a quality control failure, process failure, whatever. Yeah. So in sales and B two B sales, fifty percent or less of our reps are making quota year after year. And so as a sales <laughs> manager, aren't you effectively like the factory manager that's sending product out to customers you know has a high probability of failure? Isn't that in essence what we're doing? Yeah, I mean, if you have a team that's make you know less than fifty percent of your team is making quota, that's that's a real problem, uh, and that's actually below benchmarks. But, but, but by the way, I also will tell you this, um, and and I'm actually, <laughs> I I will say this. So a lot of companies are setting the kinds of quotas that are not sort of effective, if you will. As well, right? Especially that happens frequently in, in high growth, hyperscale B two B SaaS companies. Um, in fact, um, and I don't want to deviate too much, but uh, I'm having a conversation with Jason Jordan in mm-hmm. a few weeks um, on my podcast. He's um, uh, he wrote obviously the well known. Yeah, he's, book, he's crack- been on the show. Okay, great. Cracking the sales management code for anyone who's listening who hasn't read him. Great book. Um, and he had this point that. Um, what you know when people recruit sales professionals, it, it's sort of incorrect to think that the the good ones are the ones who always hit quota, and in the sort of in an inverse way to think about it is that just because someone has missed quota or missed a couple of um, quota periods during quarters or or years in their career or in their past, or even lost a job at some company because they missed a quota and they got fired. It doesn't make them a bad sales rep. There are many other reasons which a bad leader will refer to as excuses, but a really good leader like Bill Belichick will look far beyond um, the the surface to identify talent that mm-hmm. others don't want, right? So, um, you know, but I do think a lot of the reasons why reps, uh, for sure, misquote is because of their leader and bad leadership or not as effective of leadership as it should be. But another reason is companies, um, and sometimes the sales leader doesn't have as much control, unfortunately, because the the CEO uh, with the investors might set the kind of quota that's not that's not reasonable um, to you know to set, and you cannot expect, unfortunately, at that point, any more than fifty percent to hit it, even if you have a great team. Well, but, yeah, I just I posted on that. Uh, LinkedIn about a week ago and 
yeah, we've, we're being we're in about how, do you know how quota is set? And <laughs> very few little, people do do not give a little little example in the post, and it's yeah, it's had a huge a huge reaction on LinkedIn, but because obviously, yeah, well over thirty thousand views at this point, because um, yeah, it's so arbitrary. But that's yeah, a whole separate a separate episode, whole separate yeah. episode for us to talk about. I agree. There, there should be an episode just on that because there's there's a big fail. Um, when that happens, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but but uh, long story short, a lot depends on the leader, and you know the the goal of the leader in this case is really to ensure that the team is better off with the leader there. So if you're if you're a good leader, um, the team should be better off with you at the top rather than when you're not around, right? Well, yeah, I I think sales managers don't feel and this is not new, but this has you know, been something I felt throughout most of my careers, is most sales leaders don't feel bad enough when people that work for them don't become consistent performers. Mm, yeah. And it's back to my you know, sort of analogy of the factory manager, is, yeah, there's going to be a wide variety of, of people's ability to succeed in any one environment. But yeah, we can't ever make the claim that we've ever done enough as a profession for the people that that work for us. And there's been some companies that, you know, huge enterprises, IBM and others that have Xerox have invested mightily and and have you know trained people well and so on. But there are way fewer of those enterprises doing that type of training these days that's effective, that's creating legions of salespeople that go filter throughout the rest of the industry as it did happen, you know. 20, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's you know, greater responsibility in companies of all sizes to exhibit the leadership and to invest in the development of their people and to, again, yeah, people, people succeed in different, different ways and we have to become accommodating of that and uh, have some flexibility, but be very clear in terms of how we over-communicate, what our objectives are, what the expectations are for sellers. You you just said something else. You you said training. I, I call it development. It could be, you know, doing the right training, um, doing coaching, mentoring, yes. whatever it is, developing people. There's another big problem that that's not being talked about enough. I think, um, and this is uh, this is basically the story of the forgotten rookie. You, I'm sure you heard of it. This is a term that's used by Chris Lytle, uh, who wrote the book The Accidental Sales Manager. I'm a fan of Chris. Mm-hmm. You probably know him. Um, the forgotten rookie is, is the the A player sales pro professional, your account exec, who's done a fantastic job over the past couple of years, overachieved, overtained their quota, has done great for the company. But now you want to promote him to a sales manager. But they were really good at selling while sales management and being um, – a leader of any kind is a very different skill set, but they get promoted, but nobody, well, I don't want to say nobody that's extreme, right? But, but in most cases that you will see, they don't get any managerial training. They don't get a lot of managerial coaching. They just kind of are left to their own devices. And it's a real shame. Absolutely. Because, right. It's I have a, a real solution. Shame. I have a solution for that. Yeah, <laughs> Go ahead. 
and I've talked about on the show many, many times, is so the number that exists that I've read is that we spend roughly $20 billion a year on sales training in the United States. Mm-hmm. And my solution is that of which, let's say, maybe what, 5% is spent on training sales managers? That's if that. Yeah. So let's just reverse the fractions. Probably. And you actually hit another great so point. So let's, let's spend $19 billion a year training sales managers and just a billion on sellers. Because let's I face it, sales, <laughs> sales is an apprenticeship. You basically yeah. learn by doing. You learn through the coaching you get. That's how I learned. Yeah. The coach, I learned from my yeah. coaches and my customers and my own experience. So basically an apprenticeship. And in fact, I just posted about that on LinkedIn today. I had four months of sales training my first year on the job back decades ago, and I couldn't forget it fast enough. So, you know, I think that, that yeah, we want to help sales managers. Yeah, let's, in essence, we could spend 90% less on training sellers and 90% more on training managers and have a beneficial impact. I'm actually convinced yeah. of yeah, no, I look, I mean what you're saying is is actually aligned to to the study that was done and this is actually common sense. Uh but when I say common sense there's this famous quote uh, If it was a, so common, well, common sense is not so common. Yes, right. <laughs> if it was so common, we wouldn't call it. Yes. Yeah, but the issue is that you have let's say one sales manager, one manager of any kind actually. This is applicable across the board to to any organization is that um, you're managing, you know, seven, eight, ten people, for example. So if you have a manager that's ineffective, not a good manager, not because they they don't want to be a good manager, they just don't know how, and it's it's a skill right. set that must be trained, right? And uh, you then have a whole team of ten people. It's a multiplier that is not as effective because of that. So mm-hmm. for sure, there's actually been a question. I think this study was done by the ZS Associates, which is um, Andy Zoltner's, who. Uh, Mm-hmm. They're well known in the sales management um, world. They obviously you know, consult multi-billion-dollar companies and private equity firms on sales, sales compensation, sales effectiveness strategy. And they talk about that you know, you know, when you choose between a, you know, getting a, a good sales manager and a good sales rep or a sales team, you're better off going for a better sales manager because then they can hire and develop a team that's going to be good, right? So that's that's it right there. What you said about inversing, I I, I buy into that. I agree. Good. All right, we'll start the movement <laughs> to make that it. happen. Well, Let's I mean, I think it. it's it's just it it's indicative of how we underinvest in sales. Where and you look at so much of what's written now about what are the changes in sales going to be as a result of the pandemic, and you have CFOs saying, well. Yeah, we want to harvest all the cost savings from not having sellers travel or not not you know having to bring sellers together for training or not having to have office space and rather than saying, well, those aren't really those are false economies. Why don't we invest the money in developing the organization, developing sellers, mm-hmm. and most importantly, developing our managers, right? Because yes. yeah, to your point. You know, we don't train them, and we ask, going all the way to the top, I mean, we assume that someone is promoted into a management role, that suddenly they're an expert on performance improvement. Now, that's, performance improvement is a very specific field. There's a lot of science behind performance improvement, both from a, yeah. a skills yeah. and a mindset and a psychology standpoint. 
have we ever trained a single manager in any of those? No. Yeah. Yet we exactly. assume they know it, right? We assume they're experts in compensation. We can go down yeah. the list of things that we presume just by virtue of holding a title that a manager is is competent in. And it's no fault of theirs, they're not. Yet yeah. we continue down the same path. So we either need to invest, change dramatically how we invest in developing managers and or also much as we've done the sales side where we've broken into specialized sales roles is have specialized management roles. So we don't expect a manager, let's say, to be an effective coach. Let's hire yeah. a coach. There are people that are professional coaches. That's their job. Um, they don't have to be a manager. People, they could be a coach. So why why aren't we instead of telling managers, oh, we're too busy to coach, hire a coach. Yeah. I mean, the statistics that. show that you know the single most effective thing you can do for individual performance improvement is effective coaching. Absolutely. Well, if we want to sell more, yeah. let's coach more. That's yeah, all logical. Too common sensical. Yeah, too common. Look, I mean, I, and you can do that or at least put some thought into developing a system, a set of processes for developing your team. I mean, this is not that hard. I mean, and, and ultimately, listen, I mean, that is the most important job of, um, of leaders, just building a high-performing team, you know, and part of building that team is that development. H- how difficult is it to create, you know, a process for continuous ongoing development? I don't know, micro-learning, um, you know, team-to-team uh, training, you know, ask your reps, learn it, objection handling, and go teach this, you know, 10 new reps that just started to do that. There's like little things you can do even if you're not bringing in a, in a professional coach or professional training for managers or something like that. There's there's things you can do um, for, you know, for managers. There are, you know, you could, there's a ton of information online and courses you can get them to buy with their credit card and expense it. I mean, this is not rocket science, but well, anyway. Yeah, that, that would require, again, creative thinking about how we train people <laughs> and some thought. And it's not even that creative. Of, it's simple. <laughs> well, yeah, but a simple idea is instead of generating a you know a budget to say, let's bring in a sales training company to do a one-day seminar, and we'll do that once a quarter training seminar, which you know people promptly forget. Yeah, it's, true. There's so many good online resources these days that you could have a team vet what some of those are absolutely say, look here are four or five of them and we are going to give you instead of spending all this money on sales training collectively what we're going to do is give you the salesperson stipend yeah and spend the stipend and it has to be in these vetted courses and there's going to be you know we want to obviously have to be able to build track how they did on it and so on but that'd be part of the vetting process but wow then suddenly People start learning in the way that that is more scientific and more modern in most of those cases. And, um, yeah, we get it spread out through the entire year. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things we could do that, like I said, just a little creative, but, yeah, requires people to give some thought to it. So, all right, Zorian. Yeah. We've run out of time, but uh, it's been fun. Uh, If people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Totally. I mean, first of all, LinkedIn, you can find me there. Second of all, um, you can email me at work. Um, it's my last name, Rotenberg at infotelligent.com. Um, we, by the way, it's too sad we didn't talk about my company and what we do because we sell to sales. 
it's a sales tech company. But anyway, um, it's all right. Hopefully we'll, we'll, <laughs> well, people can check it out. They should definitely check it out. We compete against Zoom Info uh, in, the, in that space, data and contacts and companies that you can sell to. So in any case, but yeah, I, um, I'm just using many podcasts. They're like, well, tell us about your company. But anyway, hopefully people will check it out as the right audience. Uh, find me on LinkedIn, email me. Um, I'm always happy to talk to others and, and be helpful to others. Perfect. Zorian, thank you so much. Andy, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Zorian Rotenberg, for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.